Welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. I'm your aptly named host of your favorite hebdomadal podcast. Happy New Year. I hope you enjoyed your time off. I hope you're looking forward to our new year. And I have more on that in, in Tony's Take Two. Oh, I'm glad you're with me. I'd suffer with salpangum fraxis if I had to hear that you missed this week's show. Gene and Amy's 2023 Outlook. Our esteemed contributors, Gene Takagi and Amy Sample Ward, reveal what they're thinking about for the new year. We're talking about Twitter, donor-advised funds, fiscal sponsorship, and illegal activities. Gene comes to us from Neo Law Group, and Amy is CEO of N10. On Tony's Take Two, take in this new year. What a genuine pleasure to have both Gene Takagi and Amy Sample Ward with me, us, together, substantively. It's not just a 50th anniversary show. No, this is not the 650th show. This is not July of 2023. Gene and Amy are with us to talk substance together and crosstalk as well. You know them, but they are esteemed contributors and they are due their proper introductions. Gene is our legal contributor and managing attorney of NEO, the nonprofit and exempt organizations law group in San Francisco. He edits the wildly popular nonprofitlawblog.com and is a part-time lecturer at Columbia University. The firm is at neolawgroup.com and he's at GTAC. Welcome to the New Year's show, Gene. Thank you, Tony. Great to be here and great to be here with Amy, especially. Absolutely, yes, a genuine pleasure with Amy Sample Ward, who is CEO of N10 and our technology and social media contributor. Their most recent co-authored book is The Tech That Comes Next, about equity and inclusiveness in technology development. They're at amysampleward.org and at Amy R.S. Ward. Amy, Happy New Year. Welcome to the New Year show. Thanks. It it feels like maybe we'll revisit the intro if you're saying our Twitter handles and then we're about to talk about what's happening over at Twitter. But, you know, that's all part of what's to come in a little Absolutely. bit. Absolutely. Yeah, this could end up being a mastodon. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see about that. Absolutely. All right. We um, we are going to start with Gene um, to talk about Gene. You're concerned about some uh, some legislative potential changes around donor advised funds. Yeah, I mean, it's the donor advised fund area is probably one that most of your listeners are kind of familiar with because they're the fastest growing area of charitable giving. Um, over a trillion dollars now held by donor advised funds, and that is huge, growing much faster than private foundations. And yeah. you know, they make up some of the biggest charity charities uh, in the country. I think. Um, possibly half of the top 10 maybe um uh maybe donor advised fund sponsoring organizations and several of those associated with financial institutions um so like a fidelity or a vanguard schwab goldman sachs morgan stanley um so you know there's been some heat about well are these really charities are they charitable giving and the answer is yes they are charities even though they are associated with financial institutions 
But that heat has led up to people going, well, what is the money doing? What is that $1 trillion doing in these donor advised funds? Are they actually and, making... And, and this has been percolating for years. Yeah, it I mean, has This been. began on the, the Senate, wasn't the Senate Finance Committee? Uh, it was one of the Senate committees. Yeah, uh, th this has been coming up for years around the money parked in donor advised funds and not getting to... 501c3 charities. Yeah, I think starting with uh, Senator Grassley at, at the Senate Finance Committee. Right, Chuck Grassley, yes. Yeah, right, yeah. Iowa, yes. So it's been, people have been talking about it, but donor vice funds continue to go, sort of go up on this exponential growth curve where they just keep getting used more and more often, oftentimes by you know some of the very, very ultra-wealthy uh, yeah. individuals. And there's some heat about that too, about why do we have so many ultra wealthy individuals who can control, you know, what charities are doing, who can control our politics. By all right, that's a whole nother, oh my gosh. Yeah, right. that, that's so, uh, yeah. all, all part of the same story. But because of that, you know, there's been some pushback and some legislation suggested and now sponsored and introduced. Well, uh, I should say introduced into Congress, but it's not actually been a, a bit on a bill that has a, a formal sponsor that's before anybody other than a committee right now looking at it. And that's called the Accelerating um, Charitable Efforts Act or the ACE Act. And that's up uh, uh, in front of some congressional members and a, a committee right now. And that has all these reforms to donor advised funds to help sort of mitigate some of those problems of the warehousing of wealth um, and, and money not getting out to charities as quickly as some people would like. But there are some, you know, there are pros and cons to, to what all that involves, but it's good for people to sort of be aware of it. Okay. Be, be paying attention to this. Um, now, when, uh, at least when I was in sixth and seventh grade, we used to learn that an act becomes a bill and a bill becomes law after it's signed but so thank you for making the distinction uh all right so so this doesn't have any sponsors yet there the, it's it's just, it's proposed i guess is it in a committee it's it's in a committee right now um, okay the chances okay. are while i'm not a great prognosticator of what happens on capitol hill <laughs> and i'm not i'm not based in washington i i will say what i'm hearing um from people who are is that it probably doesn't have a good chance of passing right now. Um, so it's unlikely to see changes now, but this is a growing issue, as you mentioned, Tony, that's been percolating for years and just getting more and more attention. So provisions uh, of the ACE Act, which is probably, the ACE Act overall is pretty complicated um, and we won't go into the technicalities here um, that would bore yeah, your listeners, yeah. but it's complicated. And for part of that reason, there's not sort of universal, like the nonprofit sector all wants this to be passed. No, there's like people on both sides of this issue. And because of that, I think, you know, um, prognosticators who, who are more informed who suggest that this probably won't pass as is are probably right, but there are aspects of it that could find their way in other bills. Um, so that's sometimes how laws are passed. Um, the donor advice fund laws pass through the Pension Protection Act. And right. you would not necessarily think those are related, but they can slip their way in. So just sort of pay attention to all of these, you know, um, movements around wealth and power and what that means to our um, our charitable sector and how donor advised funds are being used. 
something just to, to look at. And there are several organizations who are um, advocating on either side of this. Okay, cool. All right, we'll pay attention to donor advised funds. Uh, in terms of wealth and, uh, you know, eight, eight individuals uh, controlling uh, or certainly heavily influencing the, uh, the, the charitable priorities, that, that's for, uh, we'll have to do that on another show. Um, fiscal sponsorship is, uh, is something else you want us to, to look out for. Just, just define it, you know, in, in its basics so that everybody has the common understanding that we're starting with. So the issue with fiscal sponsorship, while it is also growing very, very quickly, um, and uh, the nonprofit sector might be aware of it, but sort of the outside world might not really know what that means. And generally what it means is that there are people who have a charitable project, but don't have a charity entity with 501c3 status to run it. They look for another group to either house it um, or to give grants to their group, which might be considered a taxable for-profit um, if they don't have 501c3 status for some period of time. And that's how fiscal sponsorship can okay. arise. It can arise in different forms, but because it's not defined by law, it's done wrong all the time. So what while about, it's growing, yeah. What about new charities that don't yet have their 501c3? Maybe they've applied, they, so they've submitted their 1023 to the IRS. But the, the process may take a long time. Uh, can they, they also are sometimes benefiting from fiscal sponsors. So they'll, they'll get an established 501c3 to make grants to them until they get their own 501c3 determination. Is that is that okay? Yeah, that's a perfect use of a fiscal sponsor. And fiscal sponsors can act as incubators, even if they're not applying for 501c3 status right away, even if it's something they'd like to test out and say, to, is this a viable charitable ah, idea? Okay. Um, so yes, fiscal sponsorship can absolutely run that way. But if it's not structured properly, even if that is the well-intended sort of purposes of everybody involved, if it's not structured properly, you can get into trouble, both as an organization, you can end up having a donor who gets denied a deduction. Um, you can get a foundation into trouble who funds it. So structuring these things properly is really important. So as this field advances and evolves, and it's been around in informal ways for you know many, many decades. Um, as this field advances, we want, we'd like to see sort of more sort of consistency in operating it in a, a a lawful manner that doesn't endanger anybody and really helps everybody accomplish what they want to do charitably. What about the idea, I mean, if you are incubating an organization, let's say it's, it's, a, it's a few people, it doesn't really matter, but I'm just trying to take it out of the realm of just one person. Suppose you're incubating a, a, an idea and you, the community foundation, because they'll often act as community uh, as fiscal sponsors, community foundations. You think it's a it's a bona fide nonprofit idea, but and you make grants to it, but it turns out not to be. So they don't get their five hundred one c three determination positive. What 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 happens then? Is is the is the community foundation liable at all? Or and what happens to the deductions that were granted to the to this nascent, now not now not uh, not a five hundred one c three entity. Yeah, so I don't want to dive too deep into the weeds, but 
yes, if the community foundation is housing and incubating the project, it's not the same project that is housed in this new entity that is applying for 501c3 status. That's going to be transferred over into the new entity once it gets its 501c3 uh, status. So if the right. community foundation is running an illegal activity, which is maybe another topic we can talk about. It is. We're going to um, talk about it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, then the okay. community foundation would, of course, get into trouble. But if it's a small right. part of what the community foundation does, which it probably would be, right, it would be maybe like 1% or maybe even less than 1% yeah. of the community foundation's yeah. overall activities, that's not going to usually result in anything terrible unless they were doing very terrible things, which is unlikely. Um, but if you know, it, it it would be different. So an incubator definitely has less risks, and they've got all their insurance and you know legal support and accounting support to make sure that it's not running afoul while it's housed in the community foundation. There's if a, I can uh, say something, Gene, I think as I'm listening to this conversation, and from Enten has um, been a fiscal sponsor for many different groups, um, yeah. oh. you know. You also don't have to be pursuing C3 status. It might, it, you, the whole purpose of what you're doing could be done. You know, like we've been a fiscal um, sponsor for a group that was going to hold an event. Once the event was over, they were all done. They weren't, there was nothing to pursue a C3 registration for, you know? So just naming that there's a few nuances in that, in the, in the timeline too, that it may not be that there's ever a, C3 application and something shady happened, but also the thing is over. You know, there's a, a lot of moving pieces. Hmm. Yeah, great what, point. What, yeah, Amy, what did you look for uh, if you de in deciding to sponsor? Well, folks approach us. We haven't, you know, gone out saying... We would love to be a fiscal sponsor. It's because it's not, you know, Enten isn't set up. There are organizations, of course, who that's like their mission is to fiscally sponsor organizations. Um, but when we have been approached and folks have asked if we can essentially like extend our organizational privilege to, to enable their work, um, mm. the things that we look for are if there's any sort of document or organizing agreement for the people involved on the other side, again, because they might not be, a, they might not be trying to be an organization, but we want there to be accountability that, that we can come back to, um, that they understand how much money they're likely to bring in and how they're going to spend it. And that Enten's books aren't going to end up with some $10,000. We can't do something, you know, um, that there's really a plan for what's coming in and, and what's going out and that they understand the options that exist for either becoming on payroll with us, not being on payroll, being a short-term contractor, um, because N10 already has staff in eight different states. But what does that look like if we were bringing someone on for a longer term and they needed to be on payroll in a state we're not in? So we just have those conversations with them. But we have a standard agreement for fiscal sponsorship that we send to folks when we're having those relationships and, you know, separate bank account, separate P&L, like all of that. Hmm. Let me add just one more thing that some yeah. sometimes it's all about creating um, what would some people would call a commons. So these projects never want to leave, but they find the efficiency of centralizing kind of administrative and back office resources and fiscal sponsor takes care of your legal filings and your tax filings, your insurance, 
Um, and multiple projects just want to stay there forever. Um, so that that's a, a use of the fiscal sponsor, a perfectly acceptable use of the fiscal sponsor as well, as long as it's structured properly. So structuring properly would be maybe my main point in this is that oftentimes people think, oh, I've seen somebody else do it. Let's do it the same way. That may not work. That, they may be using the wrong example. So the National Network of Fiscal Sponsors, um, NNFS, they've got a good sort of model of how this can be done properly. And they have a book too, don't they, Gene? Uh, uh, the book is actually from Greg Colvin and Stephanie Pettit called Fiscal Sponsorship, Six Ways to Do It Right. And it's, I believe, the only book out there. Um, and it's really good and not terribly expensive. So if you're a fiscal sponsor and you're not quite sure about what you're doing, buy that book. Okay. Fiscal Sponsorship, Six Ways to Do It Right. Hmm. Very, very aptly named book. I like it. Okay. Um, yeah. And there are also implications for the donors, right? If this is... If it's not created and implemented correctly, Gene, the, can the donors get like their charitable deduction clawed back or something like that? Yeah, they could get it denied by the IRS because if the donor directs their donation to an entity that's not a charity, so if they're telling the fiscal sponsor, you must give this money to this project that's a separate entity yeah, well, with a different bank account, the donor doesn't get a deduction fiscal sponsor may have been aiding and abetting tax fraud. So problems there. So they've got to be careful. Okay. For your donors too. All right. Yeah. And uh, on the, on the illegal activity side, what, uh, what, what's your, what are your concerns there? So um, as a lawyer, of course, any illegal activities are a concern, but. Um, well, there's, there's, there's illegal and there's, there's illegal. <laughs> Actually, that's a really good point. So one of the things that the IRS looks at is like, are you a 501c3 organization if you're conducting illegal activities? And they use the question that you asked, basically, Tony, there's illegal and there's illegal. So if you are engaging in, you know, civil disobedience um, to a small extent to advocate your perfectly appropriate charitable purpose and mission, you're probably not going to expose your 501c3 status to, to being revoked for that reason. If you're committing a little bit of bank robbery, well, that's probably <laughs> going to get you out of the 501c3 status, right? Why so, do it? Why, I mean, why, why do anything financially fraudulent for like, $1,500. Right. There's not a little bit of bank robbery. Like I want the whole safe or yeah, nothing, no, right, you right. know? I mean, if I'm going to, if I'm going to compromise my reputation and risk myself being in prison, I mean, I'm doing this for at least a million and a half or something. You know, I mean, let's make some decent money at it for Pete's sake. Well, I'm not risking everything for $50,000. No, I want the gold bars. Yeah. I want yeah. everything, you know? Right. right. I don't so know. here's yeah. how a a lawyer is crafty in. about this. I mean, I think will, like a, let's go all in. I mean, the lawyer will say we are all in in terms of how much money we're going to steal. But 99% of our staff time is spent on real stuff. It's only 1% <laughs> of our time that's spent on robbing the bank. <laughs> right. Line. It, was a, it was a tiny percentage it of my time. I, I mean, I, it was just a few phone calls, a couple of texts. I mean, some, it was some, really uh, not difficult. Did not take signal, a, right, a Some signal messages. I mean, it, you know. It was like a half an hour and, you know, we, and then we executed. So it's such a small percentage of my time, really. Why are we even bothering with this? All yeah, right. Exactly. So that's the, there's illegal and there's illegal, <laughs> exactly as you framed it. Um, 
But I think now why why the illegality doctrine, as lawyers like to call it, um, is trending a little bit is because we have some things that are considered illegal that some things that some states or jurisdictions are saying, well, no, that's not illegal. And just sort of an example is cannabis. Well, cannabis could be legal in some states. It could be legal for medical purposes, but in some states it's illegal for recreational purposes. In other states, it's illegal. And federally, it's illegal, right? So that creates just all these weird dynamics. Can we have a 501c3 organization where we're a cannabis dispensary for medical purposes? We're doing it for charitable purposes. Can we do that? And the answer there is kind of no right now. If it breaks federal law, if that is the purpose of the organization, and so now we're not talking about activities now, but if that's the purpose of the organization is to break federal law, then you can't get 501c3 status and you can't, if you have 501c3 status and you change your mission, you can't keep it. So something to look at in terms of cannabis organizations. Even if it's if, legal, even if it's legal in your state. Right. Because 501c3 right. status is a federal tax exempt status. All right. Um, right. So now that could change. That's, and that's for the mission of the organization. But what about uh, or a national organization based in DC because they're a big HQ, they have their annual event in Oregon, and the gala where in Oregon, cannabis is is completely legalized for recreation, etc. And, you know, the silent auction table has like a cannabis care package is there, they're registered in DC, the event is in Oregon, what's, what are the layers there? So the activities may be judged by what particular state they're in, although the sale of cannabis would always be sort of FDA, sort of under FDA rules as well, right? So you could always get charged with a federal crime on that, which is always the tough part. But just from the federal tax exemption standpoint, it's kind of, again, if it's activities, if it's doing it as an activity, that's one thing. Whereas, is it illegal? You know, a little bit illegal, maybe. Um, and they're probably not going to really enforce or try to take away 501c3 status because of one event in Oregon where it's legal under state law. But if that's your purpose is to, to say, hey, we don't care what the federal law is. This is what our purpose is, which is contrary to federal law that can get you in trouble. So that's the cannabis thing. But the study of cannabis or the study of um, psychedelics, certain psychedelics that might become approved federally. And Tony, as you were saying, cannabis could change as well. Mm -hmm. um, the study of it or the policy around it, that might be a perfect 501c3 purpose, um, either in the scientific realm or the charitable or educational realm, but a, a little bit of gray area in all of this. Uh, but I did want to introduce one more area of illegality, um, and that is regarding abortion, because uh, that is another really hot topic since the Dobbs decision um, by the Supreme Court, right? So that allows basically the states to decide whether abortion is legal or not. And some states are really um, strict about what they think um, would be illegal around abortion. So funding people to get an abortion, which what a charity might do, they might not perform the abortion, but they might provide funding. And sometimes it's just funding to their own employees to be able to access abortion in a state that allows it. Um, that can be illegal under state law as well. So now 
how does the five, you know, that affect the 501c3 status? Even just funding an employee, yeah, making that I an think employee benefit, for, making it an employee benefit. Oh. I think a law firm in Texas, this, this varies amongst different states, Tony. So Texas is one that's been um, pretty tough and yeah. Um, yeah. in my opinion, just terrible about um, the laws that they've used. And some of these laws go back decades. They're, they're old laws that they were ruled unconstitutional before, but now after the Dobbs decision, they're sprung back into life. Um, and so, yeah, even funding employees to be able to access abortion uh, clinics in other states could be illegal under those states. And Yeah, uh, after Dobbs, you know, there was like this wave of companies, especially for-profit companies, but I'm sure nonprofits did it too, you know, saying like, trying to, I think, in the spirit of of making clear their values, but clearly not thinking about the practicalities, you know, making these announcements, we will always fund our staff having access to this healthcare, you know, if, even if you have to travel or whatever. But like, to to Jean's point, they, that isn't very straightforward. It could, if it's known explicitly that that's what you're funding, it could be illegal if you're an organization in Texas. But also, it requires disclosure that's already making vulnerable, a vulnerable staff person, right? A reimbursement, which a number of folks we've seen say policies for reimbursement of travel. Well, now there's like a paper trail of where you went and and how much it cost. And, you know, like instead thinking about policies that say, hmm, there may be harder things happening. We're increasing your health benefit by this, you know, percentage of dollars just in, you know, like there ha we have to think about the actual users here and not just the value statement we're, we think we're making as an organization, you know. Interesting point too about the paper trail, because uh, uh, I, Texas, again, is, is one state where people who aid and abet abortion can be, uh, can be what, sued, I think, right? Or it could Correct. be right. It could be sued. So, so if there's that paper trail that Amy's talking about, that mentions where the person went and maybe what relative may have helped them, or you know, I mean that those those documents that that evidence could all be used when if if somebody nefarious inside the organization wants to wants to get some people in trouble, you know that 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 evidence could all be used against them. Yeah. And all right. Well, we yeah, I know. Last... Like, well intentioned, but maybe not so well thought out. But it's it's hard when when something so so disastrous happens. You know, people want to rush to the aid, like you know, just like individuals who give to tsunami victims and hurricanes. You know, like employers and CEOs want to rush to the aid of their employees when they feel that there's a uh, 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 something grievous happening to to them potentially. That's 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 hard. And I, I want to say we haven't heard the last uh, on this. The, these laws are going to be um, changed and challenged um, yeah. for right. years. Um, but right now we're not in a very good place. But wrapping it back into a five hundred one c three package, um, can the IRS take away your tax exemption? Um, because you do some of these things. And then we get back to your, well, is it an activity that's illegal or is it really illegal? And um, I, my feeling is that the IRS is not going to, to judge on the violation of state law 
unless the state is actually made that determination by a court ruling. So you can't, you might be able to sue somebody and say, well, you know, they violated the state law, but if there's no court ruling that says that, the IRS is not an arbiter of whether somebody has broken state law or not. So they will not take away 501c3 status for just a, a complaint that somebody is violating these rules, even though factually that might be the case. Um, and nobody is not, you know, admitting that that's not true. But the IRS is probably going to want to lay low on the whole abortion topic, uh, is my feeling about it. But the illegality doctrine, and there's a similar doctrine called the public policy doctrine, which was first introduced for racially discrimination, which was federally allowed, right? And Bob Jones University used that as, you know, admission criteria or other sort of policy criteria. And the IRS said, no, we're going to take away your tax exemption for that, even though it wasn't inconsistent with law, but it broke federal public policy. So there's a related doctrine to illegality that's a sort of violation of public policy. But these are all things that charities just start to need to know and think about because one day it may pop up right in their neighborhood and they'll be thinking about maybe we should have advocated a little bit harder um, in advance of that and tried to make a difference. Interesting um, contrast between the two examples we're talking about. Uh, cannabis having been illegal all along and now slowly becoming legal and abortion having been legal for the past 50 years now slowly becoming illegal. All right, Gene, thank you very much. Love it. It's time for Tony's Take Two. Take in your new year. Welcome to your new year. I am always optimistic at the beginning of a new year. I cannot help it. It doesn't matter if we're in uh, a pandemic or uh, an economic recession in 2009. I I'm always optimistic at the beginning of a new year. It's, it's in my DNA. So it's a year of opportunity. If 2023 was terrific for you, uh, and I'm talking personally and professionally, if it was a, a bountiful year, if it was a successful year for you, however you define that, congratulations. I'm I'm very happy for you. I'm glad that your 2022 was what you wanted it to be. Outstanding. If your 2022 wasn't, if it was something less than you would have liked, again, personally and professionally, don't let that hold you back for the new year. Your past doesn't define your future. Your 2022 doesn't constrain what you can do in 2023. Literally, each day, week, month, you've got the whole year of opportunities, new chances to excel. So don't let the past hold you back. If your last year wasn't up to what you would like it to have been, you've got a whole new year of opportunities. Welcome to your 2023. Take it in. Embrace it. That is Tony's take two. We've got buku, but loads more time for Gene and Amy's 
2023 outlook with Gene and Amy. Thanks. Amy, Twitter. What the Speaking hell? Speaking of we- a little bit of illegal. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> what the hell? Yeah, well, immoral, immoral and unethical to begin with. The, uh, the exactly. New CEO, the new CEO, Elon Musk. But uh, what, what the hell do we do with our with our Twitter accounts? I mean, we all three of us here have one. <laughs> Nearly every nonprofit, let's assume, has one. What, what we we sort of have a sense of the landscape. What, what what's your advice? Yeah, I mean, I think to to sum up my feelings, I would say like down with Twitter and long live the internet. But what that means to me is a lot longer. You know, I think the decision about whether your organization should use Twitter or not is the same today as it has been every day since 2007 or whatever, when I launched, right? Like there's always been, I think the the need to consider if a tool you're using that is not yours. You don't get to own it. It is always permanently going to be someone else's tool, right? You're just a visitor there. If its values match your expectations, if the community is there, like all those same questions that we've talked about for years are still the same questions. You know, but I think what happens is organizations hopefully do ask those questions when they join something and then it's like a closed discussion. And what I would love to see is that organizations re-ask those questions every day on these platforms, right? Um, I would love to say the conversation isn't about Elon Musk because I would like to never have a conversation about Elon Musk. (laughs) Um, However, he's really making the conversation about him by taking up a lot of the space and making the decisions, right? Um, even today, suspending the account that was like a bot that just posted when his jet went places. And now that's been suspended. You know, it's like, okay, there's just so much going on there. The issue to me isn't what has Elon tweeted or what has he done? And more, is it a platform that has the capacity to be safe for your users and your organization? Well, not if every single member of those safety teams has been fired right? Um, Is it a platform that's going to be reliable because maybe you're using it to communicate in real-time situations, updates, etc.? Maybe not when the, again, teams that support the reliability and uptime of the tool have been fired. So if it is meeting your needs, if your community is still really active there, if it feels like it's a good fit, I'm not going to say empirically there's only one answer to using any tool. Is it a tool that N10 is using anymore? No, it doesn't meet either the the reliability or the values piece that we expect. We've seen tons of community members, um, board members, organizations, you know, post their last tweet. And some of them, it's like, a very sad goodbye. And for others, it's find me on LinkedIn. <laughs> here's here's my profile, right? Um, and for others, the last tweet didn't even know that it was the last tweet. It just was the last tweet. And then there were, weren't any more, you know, it, it wasn't a sign off. It just kind of ended. Um, but 
I'll, I'll say all that and pause and then and and hear your thoughts. All right. So what you know, the the, the concerns about safety, um, reliability, the, these teams having been fired. Um, what about just taking a wait and see what might replace them? I mean, it's still we still are now January while well, we're like two months into his two and a half months or so into his ownership. Um, should we should we wait? Well, and I should say we're recording in mid-December, so yeah. it may not even it may emerge by the time this comes out in uh, yeah. early January. Hello from the past when yeah, you're listening right. to us. <laughs> <laughs> um, should we so should we wait and see what, what you may totally emerge? You totally can. You know, I think what's um, I think something to think about is that there is no clear timeline for what wait and see means. Um, there, there's not been a, we've fired all of these teams that provide the reliability of the tool and the safety of the tool, or at least the illusion of safety of the tool. Um, and we'll be hiring for those teams on X date. That's not yeah. been the the process, right? So um, that's not to say posting your last tweet includes deactivating your account and leaving and everything, right? It could just be maybe you stop using it. Um, it could be like N10 has done. We don't put money into the tool. So we don't buy ads. We don't promote things, right? So we're not investing in what it is. Yeah. And the account's open. We still have a notification set so that if a community member chooses to like tweet at us and say, hey, how come I can't find this about the conference? We still see it and could provide that customer service, right? Um, but it's not a place that we are spending our time, spending our dollars, spending our energy, even if you could still find the intent account, right? Um, and I think that's a place that for us feels like we haven't walked away from the community or whatever parts of the community are still on the platform. But we have made clear our stance is that this is not a place that feels worthy of that investment, right? What have you done personally with uh, at Amy R.S. Ward? I already use Twitter so inconsistently. Like there's one day where I just see five things and I'm like liking everybody's tweets and replying to people. And then I like accidentally go five weeks without tweeting just because I, you know, I wasn't I wasn't logged in or I wasn't looking at things. Um, I don't know that I have tweeted recently. I don't have I don't have even in my tab purgatory of my two screens, I do not have Twitter open anywhere. Um, I think the place, it's really interesting, the place that Twitter started out for me is kind of where it has returned to of very hyper local, like there's so many Portland folks that I don't otherwise see because I never leave my house um, or you know, they're, they don't work in nonprofit tech, so I wouldn't otherwise connect with them, but I could still see them on Twitter. I think that's a, a place where it started out and, and I still want to know what the replacement is. Of course, I've had lots of conversations with folks who are like, well, where should we go? And we can talk about that. But I also would encourage organizations to remember that you probably are already in more places than just Twitter. <laughs> you know, you you probably do already have a LinkedIn page, um, or if not pretty easy because your employees probably have LinkedIn profiles and, yeah. you know, set up yeah. some space there. Um, 
And most importantly, out of all of this, again, you and I have talked about this, but I really want to make clear in the midst of this kind of Twitter, what is social media anymore conversation, that you never owned any of that data. You never owned those pages. You never owned those profiles. You never got to control them. You do control your website. You do control your email list. Make sure that you are building up that list, that you are communicating with people directly in channels that you can directly um, message to, because that's no matter what happens, Twitter returns and is a place of utopia, you still won't own it, right? And you will own your list and you will own your website and making sure that you're you're really thinking about spending your time and, and money and staff time in those places. That's really valuable, you know, basic, but valuable reminder to, to cherish and uh, build on what what you do own. Yeah, your your site, your list. Yeah, I think there you know some difficult equity considerations in in Twitter's value um, as well. So beyond what the owner, who's also the only board member, uh, <laughs> uh, that's a best practice, right, Gene? Yeah. Speaking of, <laughs> <laughs> um, so beyond beyond him. Uh, there's the consideration of, well, where are the folks you are serving? Where are they at? Is there a virtual town square where they're at? Because many may be on Twitter and they may still be there. And for you to give them messaging, that might still be important. So I'm not, I, I, I'm, on I'm still on Twitter and conflicted about it, but I don't want to be judgmental about charities that decide to stay on Twitter because- yeah that may be still a really important way for them to reach out to their audiences. Um, and for the audiences, I don't want to be judgmental of them either because there are a lot of people who are not privileged to be able to access a lot of other technology and other platforms. They might, you know, find Twitter super easy and, you know, that's what they have. And I'm not yet, willing to say we're just going to leave Twitter to become this, you know, white heterosexual male dominated platform and Elon and his bros can do whatever they want with that without any pushback from other, you know, perspectives yeah. still there. I hope, Tony, let's make a 2023 resolution that Gene and I get to do more shows together um, oh, because okay. it brings up such a good just hearing you um, share that, Gina, and I agree with everything. Um, as always, let the record reflect. I always agree with Gene, and I am always doing legal activity. Um, <laughs> is is the version of this from a few years ago about Facebook, right? And there's some really unique and important differences between the the Twitter options available, just like because of how the platform works versus Facebook. You know. Twitter is public by default. You don't have to have a Twitter account to go see what an organization had been tweeting about. Here's some information or here, right? Versus Facebook, which is a very like within the world of Facebook. Um, the data trail that that creates is very different, right? Organizations could say, despite the hellscape, we're staying in Twitter and we are to loop back to the previous conversation. Um, an abortion fund. And we are going to make sure that we are sharing information. No one has to interact. No one has to like ask us for it, but we're putting this information out, right? In a place where people maybe find it in a search. On Facebook, 
doing that or saying, here's our upcoming fundraiser to raise funds for abortion funds. Everyone who RSVPs for that event and has a Texas address has just created a data trail that is likely very problematic for them, right? And the organization maybe didn't even understand that's what was happening, right? So they are very different platforms, very different ethical dilemmas for sure. Um, but but what they mean for you as an organization staying there and what kinds of compromises you might be creating for already vulnerable communities are very different because they are just very different platforms, right? That operate differently. If we if we should decide to go elsewhere, uh, let's let's talk about and you well, you mentioned, you know, you may want to put on Twitter that you can now find us on yeah. we'll, we'll, we're going to talk about Mastodon and uh, there's another one post. Mm -hmm. um, but you may want to just alert folks that your activity has moved, you know, over or or like you said, find us on LinkedIn or, you know, yeah. we're very we're still very active on Facebook you know, Instagram, maybe, you know, maybe yeah. our channel, you know, whatever you want to, I think you want to let folks know what you've decided without just disappearing. Mm -hmm. And, and, yeah. and, to your and point, like, you, know, you probably should have those links on your website. So have updating your bio to say, yeah. you know, visit our website and find the channel that works for you or something, you know, you don't have to, um, you don't have to write that farewell letter as your last tweet with every link to every oh, yeah. site, yeah. right? Okay. Um, but making sure that you do think about what a user is going to see if they do try to look you up um, and, and have the bio be updated or, or whatever. Um, there, there are a lot of folks talking about Mastodon, yeah, Post, these other platforms. I'm... I have accounts on them. You are welcome to find me. I'm not posting a bunch there or anything, but um, you know me, I like to just see how tools develop. So I've had accounts on both of those. And um, so you're more, you're more altruistic than I am. You, you like to see how the, pro, how the, how the, uh, the platform develops. I just want to grab the name Tony Martinetti before, <laughs> for somebody else who's been on my show. I've had Tony Martin, the other, another Tony Martinetti on my show. Um he never had me on his show. Come think of it. Well, there is, yeah. as of today, but, no other Amy Sample Ward. So right, and there's I only one Tony Martin. On, but but I'm not posting. But I wanted to grab the uh, grab I the see. real estate. But yes. I did it for more selfish reasons. You did it for <laughs> altruistic. You know, I, and research I mean, I purposes. think that um, as is true with a lot of social media platforms that have been uh financed by and developed by the privileged communities of tech development that's who's mostly on those platforms already right um even though they're very different mastodon is you know kind of like what's the open source values whatever i haven't seen um a lot of that uh, and and post trying to be more about like what are you really thinking and like content focused it's mostly screenshots of tweets, so it feels a little, um, a, a little, a, a little bit of whiplash. But I wouldn't say that it's bad if you are like Tony and you were like, "But there's so many organizations with our acronym. Like we want the the handle. Go for it, but don't go fill the account with content as if you are present there. Just just sit on the the handle, you know." Because once you have a complete profile, 
well, now it looks like you are trying to post there and people don't know how to interact, right? Just yeah, hold yeah. it, reserve it in your name, put the password in LastPass, you know, um, but but don't, don't. Um, like I've always said, N10 doesn't have an account on these platforms, even though I just said that I do and a number of staff do because you, you aren't gonna use a individual first platform as an organization well if you haven't been an individual first um, to, to actually know how it works, Very what's good. the ins and outs of this tool, what are the norms. Um, Mastodon works a little bit differently than folks may have experienced um, where you are, in order to even create an account, you have to pick kind of what, what server you want to be associated with, that changes what name, it changes your default kind of news feed. Um, so there are a lot of things that you aren't going to know out of the box for your organizational profile. You're going to need to play with it. And there, all these tools are developing a lot faster as they see hundreds of thousands of new users, you know. Um, and I think, again, back to the values point, they are also experiencing the challenges of lots of users, right? Post said that it only took six days before they had to take swastikas down. So what is it, what, what, are the, what are the platforms doing? What are the values there? How are they moderating or managing content safety users before you say, oh yeah, let's have our organization profile there? I did see, uh... A, a nonprofit power user and and very popular person, of course, Beth Cantor. Uh, she's active on Mastodon. She didn't just uh -huh. she didn't just take an account, but she's yep. actively moved there, um, posting lists of other nonprofit folks to to follow that you know that she follows, uh, so that uh, another another drop another name uh, Jay Frost. I see he's there. Yeah. Um, so I mean that's just that's just two people, uh, but Beth in particular happens to have many hundreds of thousands of followers, right. uh, or had on on Twitter. Um, so it's it's pretty monumental decision to to leave that kind of uh, um, that kind of largeness and mm -hmm. and go to something where you know you're now you're now you now have zero followers on on, <laughs> right. on day on day one. So that's yes. a significant decision. Yes. Um, so I, I've seen, and there's some other folks too, but th those 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 are the ones that come to mind that that have made the move there and and are active and actively encouraging others to come. Yeah, yeah. All right. You so. know, and I and I think not to put Gene on the spot. I know this isn't what you were prepared to to talk about, but I think we saw this with Facebook and you know, Facebook had its own rules about how they would kind of pursue this, but these new these new platforms will have to have their rules too. And that is organizations who don't necessarily have a registered trademark, but are very clearly like the United Way of Portland or something, you know, and then somebody went on there and created that account already, right? And is trying to sit on it. Twitter has experienced, you know, people sitting on accounts and then um, people needing to have access to them and saying, that's actually my name or my organization's name or, you know, people that sit on the URLs of like World War Three. Oh, now there is one. We need that URL, you know, whatever. Um, so that that will there there will have to be a course, whatever that course may be for resolution on that. I also I just don't want people leaving the conversation feeling like 
they need to spend the next two hours finding these platforms, requesting an account and trying to sit on their organization's name themselves. Like, if you want to, you can, but don't feel that's not the takeaway here. Yeah, don't do it. Don't do what Tony Martinetti did. <laughs> or just don't feel <laughs> obligated that you have to. Yeah. I'm sitting on a post account, Tony, and I'm active on Mastodon uh, as well. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's going to be a, a tricky thing. But for organizations, if you do find somebody using your name, you you may want to bring it up and challenge that use. Talk to a lawyer uh, about that, especially if they're putting anything in that misrepresents your organization, if they're acting like they're spoofing your organization mm -hmm. and putting out some content that's not true or bad for you. Um, mm -hmm. Make sure you put a stop to that. I guess there are people who would do that and just hope to make some money at it. Like, there's if, definitely money to be made. I mean, if I get accounts, you yeah, know, if I get like Ford Motor Company or Tesla or something, you know, I'll be happy to sell it to you for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars or well, a million and a half seems to be my price. So, <laughs> I mean, we see you. that with URLs already, right? People just buy yeah. lots of URLs waiting right. for somebody to create a product called like the Oreo, the Oreo slushy. Great. Now we invented it. We need to buy that URL from you, you know? All right. We're all in the wrong business. Let's just go buy a bunch of URLs. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, Amy, anything more we should talk about Mastodon? Oh, I did want to just clarify for folks, because you mentioned Mastodon, you have to select a server. Yeah. It's really just, it, to me, it's a community. Sure. But there are only about 10 of them. It's not like there's a knitting community and a and a rock climbing and a soccer, you know, it's not like that. Not yet. Right, but anyway. I don't want to use the word community and have folks get to that first page and see the word server and have no idea where the word, right. you know. Right. But yes, you're right. You are, you are kind of choosing the space that's your entry point into the world of Mastodon. And there is um, one with a social good label to it. Yes. So like, so Beth Cantor is at Beth Cantor dot social good something. Yes. It's like you said, it, it affects your, your uh, name, it affects yeah. your screen name, your, your handle, yeah. your ID. Yeah. 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 Um, I, the, the only last thing that I'll add in our final minutes here is a very long time ago, people have been like OG listeners. Um, you know, we used to say, well, well, how would you know what social channels your users are on? And, you know, I've talked about having in your own website for your user profiles or in donation uh, forms, wherever you might be getting feedback from folks, not that they have to put their URL in, but just a checkbox like, oh, yeah, we do you I have a Facebook account and an Instagram account and a whatever, you know, whatever it might be. Um, make this as an opportunity to go check those lists and say, maybe we should add Mastodon or maybe we should add post or we should update what options we're actually providing so that you could notice, oh, there are a lot more people now here. Maybe it's worth us looking at that platform. Right. So if you're doing some year end data cleaning, look at your at your profile forms or your feedback forms where you might say what tool, you know, what other channels are you on and add some more of these um, newer tools. Amy Sample Ward, CEO of N10. For the time being, she's at Amy. <laughs> <laughs> they are at Amy R.S. Ward. And Jean Takagi, principal attorney at the NEO Nonprofit and Exempt Organizations Law Group. For the time being at GTAC, but also 
You'll find him on Mastodon and Post. Amy, thank you. Gene, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Tony. I really Thanks, do want to do shows together with Gene. No, it's I fun. concur. Yes, uh, that's uh, I think that's a good idea. Well, let, let, let's uh, make sure we do another couple of these this year. Perfect. All right. And again, Happy New Year. Next week, Erica Mills Barnhart on Common Communications Conundrums. If you missed any part of this week's show, I beseech you. Find it at TonyMartinetti.com. Our creative producer is Claire Meyerhoff. The show's social media is by Susan Chavez. Mark Silverman is our web guy. And this music is by Scott Stein. Thank you for that affirmation, Scotty. Be with me next week for Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Go out and be great. <laughs>